Good morning. You find your seats. We're going to be in Psalm 35 this morning. So it's a, it's a little bit of a lengthy psalm, so worth grabbing your Bibles and getting it open real quick. Psalm 35. When you found that, go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Psalm 35 is of David. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him? Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I don't know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I didn't know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those who rejoice over me, who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause, for they don't speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Steve, and it's my privilege to uh, bring you the message this morning from Psalm 35. Uh, if, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to go back to the back tables and get one, because I'm, I would like for you guys to have your Bibles open today to Psalm 35. I'm, I'm, I'm going to refer to a lot of different verses, but they're not going to be up on the screen. There's just so many. So it'll be a benefit to you to have a Bible open this morning. Uh, as you heard Ryan read, the sermon text is Psalm 35, but I want to begin this morning by giving a, an overview, a survey of the last half of 1 Samuel. In particular, I want to pay attention to the relationship between Saul and David. Saul it was the first king of Israel, but the Lord, after some time that he had been on the throne, the Lord rejected him. Because Saul valued the approval of men above faithful obedience to God. And, and God withdrew his Holy Spirit from him. And so he sent Samuel to Bethlehem to the family of Jesse. And Samuel anointed a young boy with a horn of oil proclaiming that he would be the next king of Israel. We don't know how old David was then. He was tending sheep, so I don't know, 10 or 12 maybe at the youngest. But anyway, from that time on, David's and Saul's lives intersected a lot. The first thing that happened was that when God not only withdrew his spirit from Saul, but he sent a an harmful spirit, the Bible calls it, to torment Saul. And and no one could bring relief to Saul from his torment, from this harmful spirit. But one of Saul's servants knew about David and knew that David was a highly skilled musician, especially in playing the lyre, which is a small harp. And so they pulled David into service to Saul, and David would play the lyre whenever Saul was tormented by the spirit. And the Bible says that when Saul would listen to David playing the music that he would be comforted and soothed and the harmful spirit would depart. And as their relationship grew, the Bible tells us that Saul loved David very deeply. And David continued to be a blessing to Saul. You might recall that he slew a gentleman by the name of Goliath and that that slaying of Goliath led to a great military victory for Saul and his armies. Later on, as David grew older and was actually in military service himself, he became a commander of some of the armies, and David would lead them out against the enemies of Saul and enemies of God, and he would win mighty victories for Saul. And Saul became a tremendously successful military commander because of David's exploits. David became best friends with Saul's oldest son, the one who would have been in line to be the next king, Jonathan. The Bible says their souls were knit together. And finally, Saul gave one of his daughters, Michael, to, to David to be his wife. And yet, as David's popularity grew, Saul's love for David began to wane and be replaced by intense jealousy. And eventually that grew to hatred 
to the point that Saul tried several times to throw a spear through David. But David was agile enough to dodge it. And it all came to a head when Saul and his, his people, his advisors and his servants, who, by the way, also, because they wanted to curry favor with Saul, hated David and sought his demise, they plotted to kidnap David out of his bed at night. And David's wife, Michael, heard of the plot, and she allowed uh, David to escape out the window. And finally, David's best friend, Jonathan, came to him and said, you need to you need to get out of here because Saul's going to kill you if you don't. You need to flee Israel. And so Saul and his army then pursued David around the, and his men around southern Israel for many, many years. So let's recap. David has done nothing but bless Saul. He's done nothing but good to Saul. And Saul has repaid David's love and kindness by trying to kill him, by running him out of the country, by pursuing him throughout the southern wilderness. Can you imagine the soul-crushing betrayal that David felt? Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been betrayed by someone close to you, maybe a family member? Have you ever been betrayed maybe by a, a boss? Have you ever been betrayed by someone in the church? If so, you know the pain and sorrow that David was experiencing, this heartbreaking betrayal that went on for years throughout David's youth and his early manhood. Saul was, Saul was killed in battle when David was 30 years old. All of that time, and even it reminds me of Joseph having the same thing, like his, his life has been wasted up to that point. It would have been easy for him to think, right? The despair and the heartbreak. And Psalm 35 was written for those of us who've been betrayed or those of us who are falsely accused to give us language to pray to God when we experience that kind of heartbreak. Now, we don't know for sure if this time in 1 Samuel that I've been talking about was the exact, the exact uh, event or events that gave birth to Psalm 35, but the internal evidence suggests that it was Saul's disloyalty to David that was the, the source. And even if not, if we can just identify with David and how he felt during that time, I think it will give us an opportunity to identify with him as he writes this psalm and as we go through Psalm 35. You can see David's sense of betrayal. Look at verse 12. He says, They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. In verses 13 and 14, David presents his case for the good that he bestowed on his enemies. 
It says, when they were sick, and I think of Saul being tormented by the Spirit, it tore him up on the inside. He says he fasted and he prayed and he grieved for them as he would a close friend or brother or even his own mother. But now in verses 15 and 16, David contrasts his actions for the good of these people with their actions when the enemy, when the shoe is on the other foot. When David's in distress, he says, They gathered around me like wild animals moving in for the kill. They rejoiced at my suffering. They mocked me. And it even appears that they brought others in that David didn't even know to enjoy his humiliation. This is the sorrow of one who's betrayed by friends or wrongly accused. And in his despair, David responds to God with Psalm 35, a prayer for vindication. I want your takeaway from, this, from Psalm 35 to be this this morning. God's children can depend in prayer. I should have put commas around in prayer probably. God's children can depend in prayer on their incomparable Savior to vindicate them when they are unfairly accused. And according to his righteousness, right every wrong that is done to them when they are betrayed. God's children can depend on God. They can pray to God and trust him to vindicate them. And my prayer for you this morning is that you will see with eyes of faith the hand of God at work when you are betrayed that you will be able to pray confidently to God to vindicate you when you're falsely accused, trusting in His steadfast faithfulness, and that you will be able to rejoice in the salvation that God gives you. My plan this morning is to take this sermon proposition that I've given you, and we're going to break apart into three or four parts, and we're going to see how we can See where we get it from Psalm 35 and then see how we can apply it to our lives. So let's start with this. God's children should pray when they're betrayed. Psalm 35 is characterized by many scholars as an imprecatory lament. There's a $10 phrase for you. Imprecatory lament. Well, let's start with lament. We've seen, we've, we've had laments before, right? About 30 to 40% of the Psalms are laments. So we're going, if we're going through Psalms, we're going we're gonna to preach through a lot of laments. And we know that a, a godly lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow that is directed toward God in faith, in His sovereign will, in faith that His sovereign will is best. In other words, in faith that God is God and God is good. And in hope that he will act on their behalf. So a godly lament, again, is a prayer directed toward God. And here in this psalm, David is, is praying that God will rescue him from his enemies. And not only that, but that he will give his enemies their just punishment. An imprecation, that's the $10 word, is a spoken curse. So when we talk about an imprecatory lament, it's a lament that has a curse in it for one's enemies, seeking, the, uh, 
seeking God to take care of his enemies, to vindicate him, and then to punish his enemies. But we're going to see, as we go through this, that a proper godly motivation is the key ingredient to keeping these laments from sliding into self-centered sinfulness. Now, if you look in your Bible at Psalm 35, you probably see that it's broken up into three parts, uh, three sections. There's verses 1 to 10, 11 to 18, and 19 through 28. In each section, David pleads with God to rescue him and to give his enemies their just punishment. And then each section ends with praise to God for his deliverance. And if you look in the first section, you'll notice that David teaches us right off the bat that we should pray in these circumstances because you'll know, notice that the first verses are directed to God. And so it's a prayer. Notice that David uses strong warlike language in this prayer. Verse 1, he says, contend with those who contend with me, fight with those who fight with me. David's asking God to respond to the enemy in the same way that they are attacking him. In verse 2, he says, Take hold of shield and buckler and rise to my help. That's shield and, and a buckler is another type of shield. Those are defensive weapons. And then in verse 3, it says, Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. And those are offensive weapons but can also be used defensively. And I, I just, I love this image and I can't, not preach this without telling you this, that the Hebrew for verse 3, where it's talking about the spear and javelin, the picture shown in the Hebrew there is of a strong warrior armed to the teeth, standing in the doorway of a stronghold or a, or a fort, and he takes his spear, his large spear, and he holds it across the doorway, keeping the enemy out while those who are inside, who are non-combatants, can escape. I love that picture of God making a way of escape for us. And now he turns in verse 4 and he says, Let them be put to shame. Now he's, he's talking about his enemies. He wants them to be turned back and disappointed. Verse 5, he wants them to be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Verse 6, let their... Let their escape be a treacherous. He wants them to be dark and slippery when they're trying to get away. And again, he wants them to be hunted down by the angel of the Lord. These are not weak, wimpy prayers. David's calling on God to act on his behalf. These prayers are in the language of warfare. David wants strong action from God. And now, as we turn to verse 7, what's the first word there? For. Here's the reason David is praying in this way. For his enemies have hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life, he says. Verse 8. He wants his enemies to be trapped in the traps that they have set it for him. He says... Let them be caught in the net that they've set for me. Let them fall into the pit that they dug for me. David wants his enemies to get a taste of their own medicine. And I, I see the greatest fulfillment of this 
David's not only talking about how to pray for his enemies that he has, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's pointing forward to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Think about it. Satan planned that whole thing. It says Satan entered into Judas to go betray Jesus. I'm sure Satan and his demons were rejoicing when they saw Jesus on trial, when they saw him beaten, when they saw him flogged, when they saw his hands and his feet nailed into the cross. They thought they'd won. They thought the Son of God was dead and that the world was theirs to control. Makes me think of that song we sing. We sing, Death Was Arrested. One of the last verses says, Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as if heaven had lost. Satan thought he had won, and they were laughing right up to the moment when that stone rolled away from the tomb. As the song says, Then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. And the, what I see the relationship to Psalm 35 is, Satan thought that the crucifixion of Jesus was the final nail in the coffin of the Son of God. And instead, that was the very thing that caused Satan to be disarmed, disappointed, defeated, the cross of Jesus bruised Jesus' heel, but it crushed Satan's head. Hoist on his own petard. Back to Psalm 35, David is using these strong words of language of warfare as he pours out his heart to God. It may, to some, feel like it's presumptuous, but I don't think so. I think David is boldly asking God to act in accordance with his character. God wants to be powerful for the weak. He wants to save the poor and the needy, it says in Psalm 35. And he calls to God, Arouse, awake and rouse yourself for my vindication. And I would dare say that we need to use similar language when we are being attacked by the enemies of God. Now, who am I thinking of? Paul says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Paul says that we wrestle against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers in this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. I think that we need to pray, Oh God, drive back the forces of evil that attack your church and your people. I think we need to pray, God, make them turn tail and run. Do, and Lord, this may not be as easy to pray, Lord, do violence to the sin that lurks in my own heart. Help me to put it to death. And by the way, when we pray these prayers with warlike language against the enemies of God, don't forget that often God wants to deliver you by having you put on the armor of God to stand against Satan and his armies. God wants you to stand against them, not in your own strength, 
but in His power and His might. But sometimes our minds go to flesh and blood enemies, don't they? How should we think? Should we be thinking, praying these imprecatory laments about people who we view as enemies? Should we be calling on God to pour out fire from heaven on our unreasonable boss? Should we be praying that that guy that just cut me off in traffic, I hope he had, make him have a wreck. No, I don't believe so. Jesus has some things to say about that, doesn't he? What about in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, you've heard it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. If we're children of God, then we need to act like it and look like it. And so, rather than praying for God to destroy our boss, we should lovingly serve our boss, even when he's unreasonable to us. We should be praying for God to save that reckless driver, not only save save him from his, his himself and his reckless driving, but to save his soul. We need to pray for the salvation of our enemies rather than trying to find ways in our own strength to, to beat them down. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. And so in Psalm 35, David's response to being betrayed by people is to pray to God, asking Him to take care of His enemies, asking Him to rescue Him and deliver Him, asking Him to vindicate Him, and praying in confidence because His God, His Savior, is incomparable. And so... We want to look now that God's children should depend in prayer on their incomparable Savior. David knows where his salvation lies. Look again at verse 3. Speaking to God, David says, Say to my soul, I am your salvation. David needs to be reminded of this over and over We need to be reminded of this over and over. We need to know where our salvation lies. And we need to to constantly be preaching to ourselves that God is our salvation and we don't need to worry about it. David needs to remember this, otherwise he might take matters into his own hands. I really enjoyed studying the last part of 1 Samuel. There are just so many wonderful accounts of things going on. And just as an aside, if you have nothing else to do this afternoon, read 1 Samuel 25. I love that that account of David and Nabal and Abigail, where Abigail, Abigail intervenes and intercedes and keeps David from sinning by taking matters into his own hands to destroy his enemy. Here's another example, though, a shorter one. One time when, when Saul was chasing David through the southern wilderness, 
David and his army were hiding in a cave. Let's do it a big cave. And Saul, by the providence of God, needed to go to the bathroom and looked around for a place to go, and he chose that very cave where David and his army was hiding. And David snuck up on Saul while he was doing his business and had every opportunity to plunge a sword through his heart and finally bring to an end all of this despair and all of this sorrow that he's being suffering at the hands of Saul but he didn't do it because that was the Lord's anointed. And so instead, he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Saul, totally unaware, finally gets up and, and walks out of the cave, and David follows him. And David shouts to him from the mouth of the cave and holds up the corner of the robe as a symbol of David's faithfulness to God and his fidelity to Saul. And Saul's heart was softened for a while, and he took his army and went home. But before long, the sin began to creep back in, and, and the chase continued. But the big issue here that I want you to see is that David did not take matters in his own hands, but he trusted in the God of his salvation. It's really hard it's so hard when we have undergone betrayal, when we're being falsely accused. And the trial goes on and on and on like in the song we sang. Jason Myers said something in our pastor's meeting on Tuesday. He said, faith is a lot easier when it doesn't require long-suffering. Amen? When we are suffering for long periods of time, we have to fight for faith. And we have to preach to ourselves that our salvation lies in God. I want you to notice David's confidence in the Lord in verses 9 and 10. He asserts that when he is rescued, not if, when he is rescued, he will rejoice in the Lord and exult in his salvation. And then in verse 11, I love this. He says, O Lord, who is like you? Who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him and the poor needy from him who robs him. Who is like you, O Lord? That's where I get the phrase incomparable Savior. Who is like him? That's a rhetorical question because the obvious answer is no one. No one is like our God. No one is like our God, all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign over every detail of our lives, but also good to his children, right? We've got to keep preaching that to ourselves and believe it. David writes this in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Confident in who? 
his incomparable Savior. And since we have such a powerful ally, we can trust that when we go to our incomparable Savior in prayer, when we are betrayed or falsely accused, that he will respond, that he will vindicate us. While the first section of the psalm is written in the language of warfare, the second and third sections are written in the language of a courtroom. David's being falsely accused. Look in verse 11. Malicious witnesses rise up against David. They falsely accuse David of things about which he has no knowledge, meaning meaning they're accusing him of things that, that he hasn't done. And it's interesting While these people are false witnesses, David is calling on God to be his witness. David wants to combat the lies of the false witnesses with the truth of God. He says in verse 23, You have seen. You know I'm innocent. Don't be silent. Give me, give testimony on my behalf. Vindicate me. There's another $10 word. To vindicate someone is to clear them of blame or suspicion. So kids, like this. If I were to accuse Pastor Jason of breaking into my house last night and robbing me, well, the police might go to his wife, Lindsay, and Lindsay would say, he didn't rob Steve's house last night because I was with him all night, and and he, he didn't. He didn't go anywhere that I wasn't there. And since Lindsay always tells the truth, the police will believe her and Jason will be cleared of the blame for the crime. He'll be vindicated. That's what it means to be vindicated. And and that's what David is seeking here. He wants his name cleared, but to whom does he turn for vindication? turns to God. And again, we see the greatest fulfillment of this dependence on God for vindication in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like David, Jesus was falsely accused. Like David, Jesus trusted in God to vindicate him. Look in 1 Peter 2, 19-23. Peter's writing, he says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Do you hear that, church? To this You have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leading you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten and continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, like David, was blameless of what he was being accused of, only to an infinitely greater degree. Jesus, like David, had done only good 
to those who were falsely accusing him, only to a greater degree. And Jesus, like David, entrusted himself to God because he knew that God is a just judge. And in the greatest event in the history of the world, God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead, declaring him to be the Son of God that Jesus had claimed to be. In his resurrection, Jesus was vindicated. And just as Jesus did, we can also trust that when we are falsely accused or betrayed by God, that God will vindicate us. That may happen in our lifetime, or it may not happen until Christ returns. But when Christ returns, He will vindicate all of His children for the faith that they have placed in His life, death, and resurrection for their salvation. And God will impute the righteousness of Jesus. That means He'll take the righteousness of Jesus and count it to our account. He'll give us credit for Jesus' righteousness and we will be vindicated. Lastly, God's children can depend in prayer on their incomparable Savior to vindicate them when they're unfairly accused and according to His righteousness, right every wrong that is done to them when they are betrayed. Child of God, follow Jesus' example when you are betrayed. Follow in His steps when you're falsely accused. Entrust yourself to the living God who judges justly. Don't waste time and energy trying to vindicate yourself to a world that often does not judge justly. He will vindicate you in His perfect way and in His perfect timing. Notice David calls on God to act now. He says, don't be silent. You've seen what I've done, and you've seen what they're doing to me. Arouse yourself. Speak on my behalf. And there's nothing wrong with that prayer, as long as we are willing to accept the fact that God delights to answer our prayers in His way and in His timing. And we're willing to submit to that and we're willing to believe that God is God and God is good. God delights to answer the prayers of His people. But He is not obligated to answer them when we want or how we want. And so we must be humbly submissive to His sovereign goodness. And the example I'm pulling out is of the martyrs, the souls of the martyrs in Revelation 6. John tells us in Revelation 6, when he opened the fifth seal, referring to one of the angels, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So like David, they're crying out, how long? When are you going to avenge us? When are you going to vindicate us? And the answer comes in verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. 
We're told to rest a little longer. And so, church, when you are suffering a long ordeal, when you've been betrayed, when you're being falsely accused, rest as these martyrs do. Rest in their sovereign Lord. Rest in His holy and true character. And trust. And, and when you lament, it's okay to lament, but lament in faith and in hope that God will deliver you. Last thing. Look at the end of Psalm 35. David has lamented to God in hope of his salvation. David has prayed to be vindicated by God. And it all points to the end, to God being glorified and exalted. Look in verses 27 and 28. David exhorts the congregation of the faithful to cry, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his children. My tongue shall tell of your righteousness. David's whole heart is trusting in his great God to act on his behalf because according to God's righteous character, he will vindicate his children. So church, when you're betrayed, when you're falsely accused, cry out to God in prayer, depending on him to vindicate you, to right every wrong that is done to you because the Lord is great and he delights in the welfare of his children. This morning we're going to take communion together. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you have not yet committed your life to him, receiving his free gift of salvation, I urge you to not participate. The Bible warns against participating in communion falsely. And rather, I, I encourage you to stay in your seats and I encourage you to pray and ask God to open your eyes to the truth of the gospel. Or you can come back. I'm going to go during communion. I'm going to go back to the back. If you would like to come talk to me about anything, I would love to talk to you and pray with you back there. We'll go somewhere private. And that holds for anybody. If there's anything you would like me to pray for with you, just come on back to me in the back and we'll pray. But if you are trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you've been, had that profession of faith affirmed in a local church through baptism, I want to invite you to come now to get the elements of communion. You'll exit your row on the left, come to the front. We have Three tables. If you require gluten-free, we have all the gluten-free products as well as regular up here on the front. My right, your left. But exit your row to the left. Come get the elements. Return on the right. And gather with your family or with some believers around you and pray. And as you take this communion meal, take it in faith, trusting in your God to vindicate you. Trusting in your God to right every wrong that's been done and give him thanks because you have a high priest who is who's sympathetic with you. Whatever you have suffered, Jesus suffered more. 
So give him thanks for all that he has earned for you in his death and resurrection. And take this communion meal in hope of your great God who cares about your welfare. When you're ready, you may come.